the weekly Hugh Demon. Full steam ahead. All right, the podcast gets back on track. Just had an unbelievable flu back in December, the first week of December. And it was followed by bronchitis, and I couldn't stop coughing. So during the flu, quite frankly, (laughs) I couldn't even get to the microphone, much less give a rip about getting this podcast out. I felt so bad. almost went to the hospital. At least I was begging to, but (laughs) I don't like hospitals, but it was awful. And then I had bronchitis and couldn't stop coughing, and no one wants to hear that. And I don't have a cough button. I do, but it's... The way I'm set up, it's hard to get to. It's a long story that no one wants to hear, and I don't want to talk about it. <laughs> and I, I could go back and edit out the cost, but it would have taken you know, hours to do it. So anyway, then Christmas came, and I thought, you know, no one's sitting around thinking the Christmas season sucks because they didn't get a podcast download from me. So anyway, back on track. I'm not sure it'll be a Monday, every Monday feature, but I think it will. I think something will come out. If you didn't know it, I do publish a newsletter um, on Saturdays called Outside the Modern Limits. You can go to the website, The Daily Demon, and download or go to the show notes here. That's The Daily Demon. You'll see a place to subscribe. And on Mondays, when I'm not going to be able to do a podcast, a regular one, like along these Gnostic or the Existence Strikes Back line of thought, on those Mondays, I'll probably just put out my newsletter podcast. We'll see how it goes. But basically, these Monday columns are just getting to be enormously time-consuming. The one today, I'm guessing I have four hours into it. And I already had notes written down for it. So it wasn't like four hours from start to finish. It's like, I don't know how many hours. But four hours last week alone putting this thing together. So can't maintain a quality... Uh, product like that I, I can't anyway you know 4.3 times a month which is how many weeks are in the month so anyway there will be a Monday podcast going forward it just may not be in the same format anyway this week is the Gnostic never blames himself as you may recall we are working through Eric Vogelin's six traits of Gnosticism this is number two Man is born free, and everywhere he is in chains. Jean-Jacques Rousseau Rousseau's passage from the beginning of the social contract contends for the most famous in philosophy. Rousseau's point was simple. Humans are good, but there's a lot of suffering, so social institutions must be corrupting everything. Significantly, Rousseau didn't see any problems with himself. He was arguably the most self-centered philosopher of all time. He was so self-centered, biographers biographers wonder if he was even capable of love. He said of his longtime mistress, a lowly laundress, that he, quote, never felt the least glimmering of love for her. The sensual needs I satisfied with her were purely sexual, unquote. When those sensual needs resulted in five children, he put them into orphanages, which, given the state of orphanages in the 18th century, was practically a sentence of torture and early death. Only 5% of orphan children survived to adulthood, and most adult survivors became beggars and vagabonds. That's the sentence that Rousseau put his five freaking babies into. 
his delusions of grandeur were incredible. After he condescended to marry the peasant laundry woman after 25 years of banging her, he toasted himself and told everyone in attendance at the wedding that posterity would erect statues to, statues to him and, quote, it will then be no empty honor to have been a friend of Jean-Jacques Rousseau. He was, to be blunt, a first-rate ass. But it never seemed to have crossed his mind that suffering exists because of people like him. He imposed cruel sentences on his children, but it wasn't him. It was society's fault. That's where the chains came from. And that's the thing you need to know. The Gnostic never blames himself. That's the second trait of Vogelin's Gnostic. Now I'm going to read Vogelin's second trait. And as I've mentioned before, Vogelin, he like didn't suffer fools gladly. And he didn't suffer even half ignorance. He, When he wrote, he wrote what he thought was technically, uh, empirically, scientifically, what, what, however you want to put it accurate and he used terminology he didn't care if he knew the terminology or didn't know the terminology that's why if, if you read Vogelin biographers there are often glossaries that go with it so I am going to read Vogelin's summary here and it'll take about 60 seconds and bear with me because it's it's dry anyway here he goes he says and this is from science politics and Gnosticism probably his most accessible book, <laughs> believe it or not. The second aspect of the Gnostic attitude, the belief that the drawbacks of the situation can be attributed to the fact that the world is intrinsically poorly organized. For it is likewise possible to assume that the order of being as it is given to us men, wherever its origin is to be sought, is good, and that it is we human beings who are inadequate. But Gnostics are not inclined to discover the human beings in general, and they in themselves, in particular, are inadequate. If in a given situation something is not as it should be, in the Gnostics' opinion, I should add, then the fault is to be found in the wickedness of the world. Now I say this Gnostic rejection of reality takes three forms. Rousseau rejected reality by believing that the social institutions that had arisen organically over the course of thousands of years are illegitimate. That's one form of the Gnostic rejection of reality. And by the way, when I say rejection of reality, I'm saying it's rejection of the world because you think there's something wrong with the world. That, that is the rejection, or, or a type of the rejection, or a, uh, um, I guess a, a gerund, <laughs> the gerund form of rejection. Anyway, um, this Gnostic rejection of reality could take at least two other forms. One, belief that the earth is illegitimate, an illusion, a trap, or prison. Two, belief that the transcendent isn't legitimate, an illusion, a con, or drug. We've gone through this before, but I'm going to go through it again. The ancient Gnostics believed the earth isn't legitimate. Sperm cults, orgies, free love, gluttony. Such things were permitted to the ancient Gnostics. And again, the ancient Gnostics are those that existed right around the time of the early Christians, and they competed with the early Christians for adherence. And the accounts of the ancient Gnostics' decadence are almost unbelievable. I mean, literally, because we only have their Christian opponents' accounts, which are probably exaggerated, because these, these people, they wore. The Christians did not like the Gnostics, and Gnostics did not like the Christians. 
if you weren't aware of it, it's Irenaeus's um, against the heretics or against the heresies, adversus heresis or something like that. That that's like the key Christian text in this stuff. Anyway, uh, Irenaeus is probably fairly accurate, but there are other Christian writers who probably exaggerated things. But but no matter, if only half of that stuff is true, wow, these people are freaking perverts. <laughs> so the ancient Gnostics logic worked like this. An evil God made the world. Therefore, everything in the world is illegitimate. The Gnostic is a holy spiritual being, not made by the evil God. Therefore, nothing in the world can defile him, and he can do whatever he wants. The earth is matter. The Gnostic is spiritual. The two don't intertwine. If you go back and listen to the podcast about Descartes, that type of dualism is, is there as well. I'm not saying Descartes a Gnostic. I'll emphasize it later on in this podcast, and I'll emphasize it throughout. There are six traits to be a Gnostic, and someone has to hit all six of them to be a Gnostic. But by the way, even Rousseau, who hits this second trait like on the freaking head <laughs> in his personal life and his thought, um, I'm not prepared to say he's a Gnostic. I don't really have an opinion, and I don't, to the best of my knowledge, don't think Vogelin ever called him a Gnostic or exonerated him from being a Gnostic. I don't think he ever really addressed Rousseau. Anyway, just be careful before you label someone a Gnostic. Um, anyway, but that that idea, that total split between what the the body and the spirit, the spirit can do what it, uh, do it what it wants in the body because the body doesn't really exist. That's a perennial phenomenon. It happened in the Middle Ages. If you go back and listen to podcasts about the brethren of the free spirit, it happened to a large degree in the hippie culture of the 1960s, the free love movement, things like that. They didn't see themselves as being defiled by orgies. It's just they're just being free. And the spirit had to be set free. Uh, now, here's the thing. A good ancient Gnostic is not merely permitted to do what he wants. He's expected to in order to show that he's one of the spiritual ones who isn't affected by earthly matter. Indeed, in the ancient Gnostic system, he becomes obligated to do these things. It's a rite of passage. Christians renounce the devil through sacramental rituals. The ancient Gnostics renounce the world through their orgiastic rituals. The principle that the world is the creation of an evil god, however, can also result in asceticism. A severe asceticism in the attempt not to indulge, indulge any element of it. Much like people back then refused to come near a leper. So again, you have two different polar opposite reactions to this. It's like, no, no, the world is so illegitimate and filthy. I don't want to touch it. I don't want to touch another woman. I don't want to touch anything. I don't, sure as heck, don't want to eat, eat too much food because it's all this wicked product of the evil god. And I, by the way, you can see that same phenomenon among Hindu ascetics who renounce the world because they deem the world an entrapping illusion. It's called Maya, M-A-Y-A. They would kill themselves, but that would be an act of the will, which would merely be another act within the illusion. So instead, they wither away and suffocate their will until they get to their advanced stages, then they might wade into the Ganges. Ganges, G-A-N-G-E-S, Ganges River, and accept death by a crocodile. Literally, that, that's true. Okay, so the modern Gnostic believe the transcendent isn't legitimate. That's the, the, the third type of rejection of the world. This is the Promethean. 
and I've already addressed it in the two podcasts in the past six weeks or so. It's the belief that the divine order sucks. It's either stupid, Prometheus's view of Zeus, or illegitimate. Without his help, Prometheus believed Zeus wouldn't be Zeus, or simply non-existent, that there is no transcendent. No matter the form, it centers on one thing, hatred of the gods and revolt against them. And the, the tradition, and the traditions, norms, and organic growth over the centuries that emanated from those gods. Vogelin said this type of quote pneumopathological consciousness can be found in varying degrees of prominence in virtually every moment of note within modern political thought unquote. And make no doubt about it, but for this rejection of the transcendent. We wouldn't be talking about it in these podcasts. This third form of Gnosticism is the key one that we're focusing on because it is the key form of Gnosticism that informs modern thought. And it's intertwined with Rousseau's form, rejection of the social institutions, because the social institutions come up, come from the transcendent. And if you want to reject the transcendent, you want to reject the social institutions to go with it. So those two forms really are intertwined together. Anyway. Vogelin actually, well, it's really his biographer, Michael Franz, who lists all the different isms that Vogelin said are suffer from this pneumopathological consciousness that is modern Gnosticism. I'm just going to read them here. Anarchism, behaviorism, biologism, constitutionalism, existentialism, fascism, Hegelianism, liberalism, Marxism, positivism, progressivism, psychologism, or psychologism. Scientism, utilitarianism. Okay, final section. The Gnostic revels in the disruptive. A Gnostic might reject societal norms like Rousseau. He might reject creation like the ancient Gnostic. She might reject the transcendent like Prometheus and the modern Gnostic. All three forms celebrate disruption. The Gnostic likes to shake things up. He strives to be jarring. I have little doubt that much of it stems from simple pride. You see, the Gnostic doesn't want to be just another person. The Gnostic wants to be elite, or at least part of an elite group. That's why he cherishes the special knowledge that is the core of Gnosticism, and that we'll be addressing in Trait 6. And if you see portents of the woke movement, <laughs> you're not far off. The special knowledge, the inside knowledge, they're awake. The Gnostic wants to be one of them. And this love for disruption is more profound than mere vanity, I should point out, though the profound aspects are wrapped in vanity. See, the Gnostic rejects reality as given. He doesn't want reality as it has been laid out in the culture over the course of thousands of years. This means he doesn't want anything that is soaked in that reality, including tradition, norms, and, and institutions, especially the institutions. So the Gnostic attacks the institutions, always and also traditions and norms. Such things don't comport with the way the Gnostic sees or wants them to be, so he tears at them. Distrust, rejection, and destruction of institutions becomes implicit in everything he thinks and does. It becomes his default mode of thought and action. You know, I once had a priest who reveled in, quote-unquote, shaking things up. He'd laugh, ha, I like to shake things up. He never wanted people to be comfortable. He said that, I don't want people to be comfortable. 
Now, that doesn't mean he's a Gnostic, and again, all six traits have to be hit. But it does mean he was an ass, and he was an ass. And so was a Gnostic. <laughs> the Gnostic's desire to disrupt things emanates from his pride. Why accept things as given when the Gnostic has better rational ideas that should control? Pride is the essence of an ass. Now, Rousseau was an ass. I mean, he was one of those guys, I believe, who drove himself to insanity with his arrogance, much like Prometheus going writhingly mad on that rock. He was a great stylist in a culture that valued letters, so people wanted to be his friend. But he was incapable of friendship, such was his self-centeredness. When Rousseau claimed to be a literary martyr in France, David Hume brought him to England and gave him a hero's welcome, treated him practically like royalty. But Rousseau became convinced that Hume was part of a plot to persecute him further. He quarreled with Hume, and Hume was not a man who quarreled. He's a hell of a decent guy. And then he went back to France. Here's how one modern academic described Rousseau, or speculate. I shouldn't say speculate, but basically looking at his, bi his biography, concluded these things about Rousseau. He said he was a masochist, exhibitionist, neurasthenic, hypochondriac, onanist, which means he masturbated a lot, I suppose. Latent homosexual afflicted by the typical urge for repeated displacements. Incapable of normal or parental affection. Incipient, paranoiac, narcissistic introvert rendered unsocial by his illness. Filled with guilt feelings, pathologically timid, a kleptomaniac, infantilist, irritable, and miserly. Rousseau, in short, was a maniac. And so was a Gnostic. The Gnostic is always a maniac and always an ass. As always, thanks for listening.